There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. This is a week where there's been a lot of discussion about a hero. And when I say a hero, these days that's such a loose term that I feel like I have to qualify what I think makes a hero. You see, to me, a hero is someone who no matter what the consequences are, they stick to whatever it is they feel called to do. In politics, heroes are few and far between. Egos tend to override any real diligence, and perseverance to stick with the cause. They're too busy raising money for their next election. But last week, a gentleman, and I use that term for a reason, who had been imprisoned by Vladimir Putin after Putin had attempted to murder him, his death has shocked us. Not because we didn't think it could happen, but because Putin is so emboldened at this point that he would allow it to happen and then tell the world about it. So there was an incredible piece in the free press and kudos to Barry Weiss and her entire staff because they're on the cutting edge of gathering the news and the facts in interesting ways that are compelling that were between Natan Sharansky, who was one of the great heroes of the 20th century, and Alexei Navalny, the hero who died last week in a Russian prison. Navalny, through his lawyers, managed to get a Russian copy of Sharansky's famous memoir, Fear No Evil, because Sharansky had been imprisoned in the same prison as Navalny died. So when he got the book, Fear No Evil, he read it in the gulag, and that is where he died on February 16th of this year. And we know that these letters exist, and we know that he read the book because of these letters. One was sent in March of 2023, and another one in April. And so Barry Weiss felt it was her duty and an honor to publish those historic letters in their original handwritten Russia and Rebecca Koffler help with the translation. I felt that a lot of my listeners don't subscribe to free press or a lot of you don't have time to read these articles, but this one's so important that I'm going to share it with you. They use a lot of biblical references. Everything according to Ecclesiastes, what was will be writes Navalny. Their moral clarity 
In prison, I discovered that in addition to the law of universal gravitation of particles, there is also a law of universal gravitation of souls, Sharansky writes. By remaining a free person in prison, Navalny jokes that there is no better place to spend Holy Week than in the punishment cell known as Shizo, and so on. Hard to laugh, but that was their attempt at bringing some levity to this terrible situation. Sharansky ends his second letter with this line, Judging by all of your time in Shizo, you will soon beat all of my records. He said, we dissidents use black humor, but this joke is even more black than I thought. One last thing to think about. They don't usually use footnotes in free press stories, but they made an exception here so that we would be able to understand some of the references that are cited in these letters. And where it's appropriate, I will share that with my listeners. So this is the first letter written by Alexei Navalny to Natan Sharansky. Now you understand Sharansky's only crime and why he ended up in this gulag was because he wanted to emigrate to Israel. This was the first letter written by Navalny to Sharansky. I am now in penal colony IK-6 Melikohovo, but from the Vladimirskaya prison, they are writing to me that a cell is being prepared for me there. So I will likely find myself in the same facility that you were in. Only now, there will probably be a plaque saying Natan Sharansky was held here. Please forgive the intrusion and a letter from a stranger, but I believe it's permissible in author-reader relations. I am writing as a reader. I have just read your book, Fear No Evil, while I was held the PKT. PKT is solitary confinement. Prisoners in PKT are kept within their cells at all times. I was laughing when I was reading the passage where you wrote, I was penalized with a series of 15 days at Shizo, and then, as an offender who broke prison rules, they sent me to the PKT for six months. I was amused by the fact that neither the essence of the system nor the pattern of its acts has changed. I want to thank you. One understands that there are people who pay much higher prices for their convictions. I look at the postcards sent to you by Avital. All the words have been blacked out. Then I go to court where they try to convince me that burning the letters that were sent to me is legal. After all, there was a code embedded in them. I understand that I am not the first, but I really want to become the last, or at least one of the last, of those who are forced to endure this. The most important thing is to arrive at the correct conclusions so that this state of lies and hypocrisy does not enter a new cycle. In the preface of the 1991 edition, you write that dissidents in prisons have kept the virus of freedom, and it is important to prevent the KGB from inventing a vaccine against it. Alas, they have invented it. These last things and the belief that it is possible to modernize authoritarianism are the ingredients of this vaccine. 
Nonetheless, the virus of freedom is far from being eradicated. It is no longer tens or hundreds as before, but tens and hundreds of thousands who are not scared to speak out for freedom and against the war, an inspiration from your story and your legacy. I will definitely, I am definitely one of them. My thanks to you. And here I copied it for myself from the book, Lashana Haba Ba Yerushalayim. Yours, Alexi. And then Natan Sharansky wrote back a five-page letter. Dear esteemed Alexi, I respond to you not only as an author to a reader, but also as your admirer. As an author to a reader, when I was writing my book, Fear No Evil, right after my release in February of 1986, almost all of my friends and comrades in arms in a confrontation with the KGB. But by the time it was published in Russian, the USSR was already collapsing. Therefore, over the years, the book was interpreted more and more as a historical novel about the dark Middle Ages, and now the idiot's dream has come true. First, Volodya Karamosa, and Volodya Karamosa, for uh, my listeners' information, was the Russian dissident who was convicted of treason in a Russian prison today. My misfortune has brought about this silver lining. And now, as an admirer, Alexei, you are not just a dissident. You are a dissident with a style. My horror over your poisoning changed to amazement and exhilaration when you started your own independent investigation. I was very angered by the question of a certain European correspondent the day after your return to Russia. Why did he return? We all knew that he would be arrested in the airport. Does he not understand such simple things? My answer was pretty rude. You're the one who doesn't understand something, and you should not be afraid either. I wish to you, no matter how hard it may be physically, to maintain your inner freedom. In prison, I discovered that in addition to the law of universal gravitation of particles, there is also a law of universal gravitation of souls. By remaining a free person in prison, you, Alexei, influence the souls of millions of people worldwide. Sad that the past can return so quickly and so easily. Volodya Bukovsky once insisted, after the fall of the USSR, that communism must be put on trial. But there were few who supported this idea. After all, the free world won without a bullet being fired. Why return to the past? I hope now, after all those shots have been fired, it is clear why it was necessary then and why it will be necessary tomorrow. By the way, I write to you the day before Passover, the celebration of the liberation of the Jews from Egyptian slavery 3,500 years ago. That is the start of our freedom and our history as a people. On this evening, Jews from around the world sit at the holiday table and read the words, 
Today we are slaves, tomorrow free people. Today we are here, next year in Jerusalem. On this day, I am sitting at the celebratory meal wearing a kippah, which was made 40 years ago out of my footcloth by my cellmate and to all of Russia and Exodus as soon as possible. Hugs, Natan Sharansky. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Then comes the second letter that Alexei Navalny wrote to Sharansky. The prison paper was ordered April 7th of 2023. The letter is, I was so touched that I had to hide my tears from my cellmates. And this is the second time you do it to me. In the last page of Fear No Evil, where you write, forgive my being a little late. It is, of course, impossible not to start crying. In your alma mater, everything is as it was. According to Ecclesiastes, what was, will be. But I continue to believe that we will correct it. And one day in Russia, there will be what was not and will not be what was. And after all, where else to spend Holy Week if not in Shizo? A huge thank you again, hugs. And then a letter written in Jerusalem. Dear Alexei, this is just a note in response to your note. It is important for the connection between people and worlds not to be interrupted. I cannot say between the free world and the unfree world, as you are today more free than many, if not most. But I know that for your freedom you are having to pay with health, worries for your family, and eventually with your life. I had certain advantages over you. After all, the sleeves of my jacket drooped so low that I could keep myself warm in them, while for you, they probably only reach to your elbows. But at least you are able to receive these letters, and most importantly, share your experiences in real time. A Russian poet once urged, do not let your soul be lazy, to not pound water in mortar. The soul is forced to labor, both day and night, both day and night. In Russia, people struggle with this, but you do it effortlessly. You will soon beat all of my records. I hope you don't succeed in this. Hugs, Natan. And then, dear esteemed Alexei, all I can say is, as a person who frequently goes into jails, and believe me, the jails in Broward County are nasty, but they're not like the gulags that we're talking about in Siberia. But what I do see is that there is a certain attitude about people who are incarcerated, people who are imprisoned. But compassion 
is a whole different realm. And it's very difficult to look upon people day after day, the only person in history on record who was able to do that consistently was Jesus Christ. So I believe that these letters between Sharansky and Navalny will one day comfort many people who aren't just imprisoned for political reasons in gulags, but who are in jails all over the world. Jails which do very little to rehabilitate and definitely do as much as they can to break down the spirit and the soul. Fortunately, in Alexei Navalny, they broke his body, but they never broke his spirit, and they never broke his soul, which will live on. The other thing I wanted to talk about today was Hamas pogrom on October 7th. She said it was a lot to take in and process, but some of the things that were seen and heard, which particularly spoke, were the eerie silence of Kibbutz Kifar Azah, whose once idyllic aspect is still visible through its shrubs and spacious landscaping, despite the wrecked and deserted houses. Outside his house sits Shekhar, the only kibbutz residence who's still here. When the attack started, he said, I got a knife and I told my wife, Ayelet, to get under the bed, and I stood guard at the door for 30 hours. The terrorists didn't try to get in. Why not? He shrugs. The house stands alone. Others are connected in pairs. They seem to be killing people in one of each pair of houses and leaving the other one alone, he says. They thought no one was inside here, just to live here alone, in silence, in this place of death. He spreads his hands. It's my home, he says simply, and I hoped that if I came back, others would follow. Not yet. Further into Kafar Azah, the scene is very different. This is not tranquil. This is a place of the utmost horror. These houses are laid out in neat rows with neighbors facing each other across a pathway. In two of these double rows, every house has symbols painted on the outside by those who came to retrieve the remains of the slaughtered. A circle with a dot, we are told, means a body or body parts were inside. The young soldier who is our guide says that at half past six in the morning on that terrible day, the kibbutz alarm sounded without interruption for 15 minutes. About 30 minutes after the alarm started, Hundreds of terrorists poured into the kibbutz or forced out of their houses through smoke to be killed when they emerged. Two or three hours later, there was a second wave of attack. Ordinary Gazans came in by bike, on foot or on donkeys. They looted the houses and did a lot of the raping and murdering. These attackers included women and children. In one of the houses lived a young couple, Sivan Elkabetz and Naor Hasidim. Their remains were found on the sofa, a trespass upon the sacred. Outside the house, Sylvan's father is standing there, available to talk. He is calm and focused. Tell everyone, show everyone what happened here, he says. Such a composure. He strokes the sleeve. 
We visit Sederat, the city that's been under continuous bombardment for more than two decades. The mayor tells us that despite this, the city has more than doubled in size over that time. Since October 7th, most of the population has left. We'll open the schools in March, he says. We hope this will bring the residents back. But there's still great fear. Sederat is a wonderful city, he says. Because of the terror here, people don't hate each other. I have a friend, Ron, who lives in Ashkelon. And when they talk about their horror, they also talk about their hope. Would that I could learn to do the same. Oh, yeah, and there was actually another subject I wanted to get to. Why would a president running for re-election like Joe Biden refuse to meet with the Speaker of the House to discuss a national crisis that most voters blame on him anyway? This would be regarded as bizarre behavior under any circumstances, but it's particularly perverse considering that the crisis in question is illegal immigration, which is the signature issue of Biden's probable challenger in November, Donald Trump. Moreover, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average, 63% of the voters disapprove of the way Biden has handled immigration. Yet Biden refuses to discuss the problem. It's almost as if he thinks it somehow works to his advantage. What benefit would Biden gain by letting millions of illegal immigrants into the country? House Speaker Mike Johnson provided that answer during a recent appearance when he was on Fox Business Network Mornings with Maria Bartiromo. He said, I genuinely believe that originally the idea was to bring people in, open the border, have the flow come in, and turn them into voters. There's no other reason that seems to make sense. And this has been dismissed as a conspiracy theory, as we all know, by the White House and by all of its allies in the media. Yet Biden has often made public statements that suggest that that's exactly why he did it. In 2016, when he was vice president, he put it like this. He said, you know, 11 million people live in the shadows. I believe they're already American citizens. Teddy Roosevelt said it better. Americanism is not a question of birthplace or creed or a line of descent. It's a question of principles and idealism and character. These people are just waiting for a chance to contribute fully. And by that standard, 11 million undocumented aliens are already Americans, in my view. All they want, they just want a decent life for their kids, a chance to contribute to a free society, a chance to put down roots and help build the next great American century. Now, set aside Biden's implausibly low estimate of the undocumented alien population, researchers from Yale and MIT estimate the actual 2016 figure was more like 22 million. The key words that relate to voting are contribute fully. It will come as no surprise that serious research into how many of Biden's, quote, citizens, end quote, vote is very much discouraged in academia. 
In 2014, for example, a peer-reviewed article authored by Jesse Richman and Gushan Chada, both of Old Dominion University, and David Ernest of George Mason University, estimated that about 25% of non-citizens were registered to vote in 2008 and 2010. Moreover, they suggest that as many as 2.8 million of them actually voted. Inevitably, the vote fraud is rare crowd descended on the authors of the study like so many flying monkeys. Their criticisms predictably focus on when and why they published their study rather than its findings. They suggest the study was purposely produced to provide fuel to conspiracy theorists. But you know what I always say. They called Noah a conspiracy theorist when he was building the ark, and then it rained. They also accused the authors of timing it to affect the 2014 midterms. The article was published in the online version of Electoral Studies on September 21st, about five weeks before Election Day. It's highly unlikely that this publication is included in the regular reading of your average voter. I think I'm probably the only person who read it. Richmond and Ernest wrote a lengthy response to their critics in the Washington Post. Its general thrust is captured in the following passage. Our blog post and article on non-citizen voting have reached a wide audience and have motivated several efforts to dispute our methods and conclusions. Although our estimates of non-citizen registration and voting are higher than previous estimates, that should not be surprising. To our knowledge, this is the first study to use survey data to estimate non-citizen voting while other studies have relied upon incidents of detected voter fraud. Estimates of illegal behavior based upon survey data are frequently higher than estimates based upon detection rates. This final point is driven home by the known level of detection rates for illegal voting. The Heritage Foundation maintains an election fraud database that presents a sampling of recent instances of election fraud cases that have resulted in convictions. It does not purport to be exhaustive, but it does contain the details of 1,276 criminal convictions, many involving large-scale ballot harvesting operations, vote-buying schemes, and ineligible voting by non-citizens. However, because academic grant money for major research into any kind of election fraud is all but non-existent, serious studies like the one discussed are rarely conducted, leaving most American voters in the dark about how many illegal immigrants vote. All of which brings us back to President Biden's refusal to meet with House Speaker Mike Johnson about the border crisis. In May of 2023, the Republican House passed H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act, which would codify the mechanisms used by former President Trump to successfully control the border. It has been collecting dust in the Democrat-controlled Senate for nine months. Meanwhile, the Senate has produced an alternative bill that would make the current border crisis permanent. This is the legislation Biden supports. Typically, the president would meet with the House Speaker and work out a compromise. The White House, however, says there is nothing to negotiate. It's Biden's way of saying, hey, it's my way or the highway. Boy, politics just keeps getting creepier and creepier, which of course means I'll never be out of work. Try as I might to retire. 
They just keep hooking me back in. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.